This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. This is Jesse. Welcome to the Real-Time History Podcast, face-to-face edition. It's the first time in quite a while that me, Flo, the producer from Real-Time History, and our host and historian, Jesse, are sitting face-to-face. It's an honor yeah. and a pleasure. And a privilege. <laughs> that, that is also true. So a while ago, we rebranded this podcast and our other profiles into real-time history. And we were hinting that there might be other projects coming like disc- to be discussed on the podcast and also other projects that we will publish on YouTube. And the time has finally come to unveil Glory and Defeat, the story of the Franco-Prussian War week by week. Indeed, 151 years later, starting in July. Uh, the project is crowdfunding right now. Uh, you can, if you're interested, there's a link in the podcast description, realtimehistory.net slash Indiegogo. Um, as usual with our projects, uh, if we would pitch this to a TV network, uh, they would ask us if we can put Hitler in it and then be done with the discussion. This is a super in-depth documentary series. Uh, this will have the most recent and up-to-date research on the Franco-Prussian War. Um, with the 150th anniversary last year, you can imagine that there is a swath of new books, new research in it. Uh, and we're working with a very, very brilliant writing team on this. Who are they, Jesse? Who is our writing team? Yes, we've brought in reinforcements for Glory and Defeat, and not just any, but We have a renowned expert on the topic, uh, Professor Tobias Arand, who works at a German university and a research assistant who's been working closely with him and has been involved in projects on the Franco-Prussian War, Katerin Pfaut. And they are going to be our guests today for the podcast. So it's kind of an in-house team podcast for today. Exactly. Um, We we thought we'd uh, get them on the podcast to A, talk a bit more about the Franco-Prussian War in general and why it's super fascinating, relevant and interesting today. And also so you can get to know them and let's say get a, get a small taste, an appetizer of what you can expect on glory and defeat. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for the support so far. If you're listening to this and you have supported the project already, thank you so much. If you're listening to this and we've piqued your interest, Please, as I said earlier, go to realtimehistory.net slash Indiegogo. This project can only exist with uh, your direct support. Like, I'm not, this is not marketing lingo. This is the harsh reality of history documentary productions in 2021. There is no way we can finance this without your support. Or without including the aliens building the pyramids or Hitler escaping in a submarine. And we really don't want to have to do that. 
So without further ado, here is our interview. Um, if you wanna, if you have any more questions uh, about our writing, about the team, uh, we can think about doing another episode like this. So just put them in the comments or on any, you know, reply to us on any social media profiles. All right, folks. So I am pleased to have our two new colleagues with us today. Dr. Tobias Arand is a professor and head of the Social Sciences Institute at the Ludwigsburg University of Education. And he's written one of the standard works on the Franco-Prussian War. Now, I'll give you the German title first, and then I'll give you the English version after that. The German title is 1870-71, Die Geschichte des Deutsch-Französischen Krieges, erzählt in Einzelschicksalen. And so that works out to the history of the Franco-German War in individual destinies. And we're also joined by Katharine Pfaut, who's a graduate student and a research assistant at the same university. And she oversaw a public history project on Twitter over the past year, which tweeted out the Franco-Prussian War in German in real time, called Heute vor 150 Jahren, on this day 150 years ago. So, quite the introduction. We're really happy to have you in the team and working with us on Glory and Defeat, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Glad to be here. Let's start off with a, let's say, personal question. How did each of you get interested in the Franco-Prussian War, since now you're dedicating quite a lot of your professional lives to it? Okay, I will start. I was originally interested in World War I, but then wondered what its prehistory was, and ended up with the wars of unification. Then I discovered the battlefield of Wörth with its numerous wonderful monuments, which can be used to explain to students the connections between affirmative military remembrance, culture, and subsequent wars. So for almost 20 years now, I have been taking students to the battlefield of Wörth Froschweiler and other battlefields such as Sedan and Weissenburg and Metz. And well, um, as there hasn't been a comprehensive monography on the war of 1870-71 since 1970, I had the idea that I could do it after all. Well, um, let's put it this way. If you have Tobias as a professor, you basically have two choices. One, be infected by his enthusiasm for the war of 1870-71, or try to avoid his seminars, and obviously I chose the latter. Um, and especially since the Twitter project we had last year um, about the war of 1870-71, the walk doesn't let me go anymore, if you want to put it that way. Um, and well, besides the Twitter project, um, if, if you read Tobias's book, um, which you already mentioned, um, it gives you a kind of a personal approach because you read um, about the story of the war, not just what happened, but how did it affect the people um, that went through the war and not just soldiers, but also um, people that stay at home, for example. And um, then to tell these individual stories for over a year over the Twitter project um, and to work with them, deal with them on a daily basis to dream about them at night sometimes even um that of course leaves its mark on you and of course the alterity of the past is always fascinating so and what's more fascinating than a war indeed 
Uh, yeah, and that, folks out there, listeners, in a nutshell, is why we're quite happy to be working with uh, our team in Ludwig Ludwigsburg because, uh, yes, it's not all just about the dry academics and facts of it. There's a passion behind it. And so uh, we hope that that's, that that comes through in the series as well. And uh, I'm pretty confident, having seen the first scripts, that, uh, that it does. So let's get into the meat of the question now. The Franco-Prussian War has been linked to the emergence of modern war, even to the eventual emergence of total war later in the 20th century. I've seen some publications that use the periodization of 1870 to 1945 when sort of talking about the development of warfare. Why is this the case? We have in this war on a smaller scale then 1914, 1918, or 1939, 1945. The first phenomena that refer to the horrors of the 20th century, it is an industrialized war in which weapons manufactured industrially in large numbers kill and endure large numbers of people. We have mass armies at the beginning of the war on the German side conscripts, from September on also on the French side conscripts, here already a form of war is in the offing in which millions of young men are forced to risk their lives for the fatherland and then also die by the millions in the 20th century. In terms of weapons technology, I think too, there are already many signs of the First World War. The mitrailleuse already foreshadows the machine gun on a, a rotary mount to which countless lives were lost in the First World War. Also, in this war, the field gun is already much more significant than the colorful cavalry. The importance of the press and its manipulation as well as the use of the home front also points to the 20th century. I think here the total mobilization of all states and social resources is in the offing, as we know it in the First World War, especially at the time of the OHL and the Hindenburg and Ludendorff. The final point the emergence of a disgusting, really disgusting chauvinism and a propaganda that no longer wants to recognize the enemy as a human being, but as a something inferior. This development begins especially with the Soviet Republic in France and has its echo, for example, in the anti-German campaign in 1914. Right, so that combination of factors is kind of what's behind us communicating about this project as, quote-unquote, and this is Flo's expression that he brought into, uh, into uh, some of our, into our crowdfunding campaign, for example, the prequel to the First World War in a way. So I think it's quite exciting to look at those origins, uh, horrible though, of course, they may be, and their consequences. So let's turn to one of our two main protagonists here, the German Second Empire grows out of this war, is founded as a result of this war, and this is obviously an event that has major consequences. In fact, in French and German, uh, the war is often called the Franco-German War, not the Franco-Prussian War, which is probably uh, a bit more of an accurate name. But where does this war fit in the narrative of German national history? A quick thought about the name. Obviously, um, the term Franco-German War would be more accurate 
accurate than um, Franco-Prussian War, even though it did originally break out between France and Prussia, and the remain, remaining German states were basically sucked in by the Schutz- and Trutzbündnisse, which will be explained in one of the episodes. Um, but to the other part of your question, um, German historiography, this war can be described as um, a kind of hinge. On the one hand, you have, um, on the one hand, it rounds off the three wars of unifi unification. And if one follows an uncritical pro-Prussian uh, narrative, it crowns these events of 1864, 1866, and 1870-71 with the unification of the German Reich. On the other hand, though, you, uh, one can recognize in it the beginning of the catastrophes of the 20th century. Um, it led to militarization both in Germany and in France, and it left behind through the annexation of um, the Elsass and the German-speaking part of Lorraine, a first em em enemy, I don't know, maybe adversary would be better here. Yeah, probably adversary. That in 1914, again, cried out for uh, revanche. And today it is a largely forgotten war in the um, Geschichtsbewusstsein, which you would call it in German. Um, you could probably translate it in um, German historical consciousness. Maybe historical memory as well, yeah. Yeah, that, that would probably work. And um, the memory is obviously overlaid by the first, but definitely by the Second World War with the Holocaust and the displacement that, that happened during the war and afterwards and um, the German division and all of those events that um, just followed those terrible, terrible um, war. So um, I'm not surprised that it's a forgotten war, to be honest, because even though it was a horrible war, um, what came afterwards was much more horrible. <laughs> so. so kind of maybe the, the spark gets overshadowed by the fire in the end, yeah, so to speak. Pretty much, yeah. In that case, let us uh, shift over to the French side for the moment, because of course the war has a massive impact on the development of the French state as well. Uh, the Third Republic ends up being founded, the Second Empire dissolves, and of course there's then this civil conflict that comes afterward that I still see in my French history Twitter bubble that is still talked about actually, the Commune. So where does this war then fit in that grander arc, if you will, of the narrative of French state history? The, the bloody defeat of the Commune and the atrocities committed there, killing thousands of men and women and, and childs also, in addition to the military defeat, resulted in a complete debunk of the French army. To counteract these, this process, all military was particularly emphasized in the decades after 1870-71. The great um, July 14th parade to the Champs-Élysées, for example, still goes back to this process still today. Nor was, nor was the Third Republic free of authoritarian authoritarian tendencies in the following, also due to the defeat as Dreyfus affair and the career of the notorious General Boulanger show. The idea of revenge as a raison d'etre shaped Franco-German relations into the 20th century and could easily be put to the service of the war in 1914. Unlike in Germany, the war of 
1871-1871 is definitely more present in the collective historical memory than it is here in Germany. Interesting. I like, well, I like, obviously, intellectually, let's say, I find it interesting that, you know, a result of the German victory is, in some senses, an increased militarization of the society with the elan, let's say, uh, of, the, of the victory, with the momentum, so to speak. And then the response to the loss and the defeat on the French side is also connected to militarization. So all, all roads seem to be leading to, uh, to Rome here, and it's a Rome that's going to not have a good time in 1914. I think we, we kind of started on the, on the meta level for a moment here, talking about national history and development of warfare. But I want to bring us back to a point that you made, Catherine, about Professor Aran's book, that it concentrates on these individual accounts and individual experiences. And that's something we definitely, we've tried to prioritize at Real Time History in our other projects. And so we were particularly glad to see that this is also kind of part of your approach. So I want to ask you, what are some of the most interesting personal stories that you've both come across in the book and the research for that, but also for the Twitter project as well? And I especially enjoyed dealing with Major von Kretschmann, whose frequent letters to his wife are characterized by bad temper, hatred of the French, whining and whining and boredom. What is interesting about him is the openness with which he also criticized the German military leadership and thus sets an interesting counter narrative against the auric stories cultivated afterwards. More personally touching, I suppose, however, are, for example, the reports of Karl Klein, the pastor of Rajweiler, who describes the horrors of war for his village in all its crassness. I was also touched by the sad story of the death of a little boy told by the famous actress Sarah Bernard, or the story of the dead girl laid out on the grounds next to whom the soldier Karl Zeiss, soaked by the rain, had to spend the night. The story that Karl Zeiss tells of a snowball fight between Germans and Frenchmen is also beautiful because here in the middle of the war, it seemed that a bit of humanity was still possible. This story anticipates the famous Christmas truce of 1914. I found the stories of uh, Sigismund Samuel interesting. Um, Sigismund Samuel, as you can guess by the name, um, he was a Prussian Jew. Um, he came from Berlin and fought for the fatherland, for the Königreich, later than Kaiserreich. And um, obviously I dealt with him for almost three quarters of a year, almost a year actually. Um, and he tells a story through letters that were published after his death. And those letters, they were written for his little sister, um, which I only learned after quite some time. I thought he was writing to his um, wife-to-be. Yeah. Um, but apart from a little whining here and there, which can be obviously expected, um, they were mostly very funny and upbeat, but also really profound and seriously written. Um, for example, he tells the story of how one of his friends is probably going to die after he was injured in a um, small battle. And in the same letter, just a couple lines 
underneath, he tells um, his sister that he's excited to uh, being transferred to the Champagne region because uh, the bubbly is supposed to pour out of rain gutters there. So um, that that was really really fascinating to work with, um, and I've I've grown quite quite fond of him to be honest. Um, then obviously the already mentioned um, Carl Klein was very, very moving to work with, not only because um, he tells the story of a civilian with whom the war knocks on the door, but also because he describes what happens the day after the battle. Um, he The battle happens on August 6th in Wörthfreischweiler, uh, and um, have you ever asked yourself how the dead of the battles were buried or um, what, what happened afterwards? I know I never thought about it when I read it. Um, well, I can tell you, um, it's basically the uh, population that lives there who has to bury the dead. And um, he tells the story of how they put thousands of men, um, French and German, if you want to call them German, even though they weren't technically Germans back then, um, he tells the story in really great detail and is truly horrific to read. Um, and if you want to read it for yourself, um, the, he wrote it. He wrote it in a book um, called Froschweiler Konig and um, Tobias and the other professor who worked on the Twitter project, Christian Bundenberg. Uh, they just republished his book with annotations um, explaining what the pastor is telling about. And um, there's also very 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 many gruesome stories in there um and truly disgusting facts such as purple slime coming out from graves and everything so yeah um but obviously there are also really fun stories kind of to read um there's the story of the empress uh, eugenie which was really interesting because she eventually flees uh, france and that story is something really worth telling. You could probably make a movie out of it because um, it's just so fascinating. And then uh, in the end, I would have to say Bismarck was actually very fascinating to work with because it went far beyond the usual political genius narrative. Um, and it showed Bismarck, Bismarck as a person who could, for example, throw tantrums better than any two-year-old um, just to get his way from the king and the dynamic between uh, Wilhelm I and Bismarck in general is really, really fascinating. So um, obviously everyone we worked with was fascinating, but those are the kind of people that really stood out to me. So the whole range of human experience from bored to digging mass graves when you completely didn't expect to have to do that a couple of days before, right? Especially so digging them in the heat of the summer of 1870, 71, and having exploding horse uh, corpses explode on you. So as I say, the absolute, even beyond the human experience into the, into the realm of the, of the animal world as well. Um, and we want to encapsulate what we can of that in our format, of course, for this uh, film series, Glory and Defeat. Um, you mentioned something in passing, so I want to throw in a, a spontaneous question. I hope, that, I hope that's all right. Um, you mentioned the difference between 
the different Germans, let's say, that they're not all Germans back then. Of course, we know Prussia is the main kingdom, let's say, that's sort of running the show, so to speak. But what are the attitudes of some of the southern German soldiers, like Bavarians, for example, who are in their own independent kingdom and now find themselves fighting alongside of the Prussians? Are they mostly gung-ho, let's say, about fighting with Prussia, or are they a little bit more reserved, or is it somewhere in between? And they fight under the leadership of the Prussian king. It's important. I suppose one would have to um, realize that the other German states fighting wasn't a decision they just did or decided for themselves. Um, they were, as I already mentioned, they were pretty much forced um, to fight because of the Schutz und Trutzbündnisse after um, the uh, Austro-Prussian War, I believe it's called in English. Um, in, German it's, in German, it's called the German-German War, which is really fascinating. Um, yeah, so we have, for example, the um, Grand, Grand Duchy Baden. Um, they're close to Prussia because uh, they helped um, deal with the uprising in 1848. Um, then you have Obviously, you have Württemberg right next to it, and they're not happy about it at all because um, they have they have really close relations to uh, Napoleon III and the French in general. Um, you have the Bavarians who are not really they're not really happy about it either, and the soldiers. Um, and I guess you have in all the German states you have the soldiers that believe um, this tale of the insult against um, the Prussian king and kind of, if you go further, even the Germans, um, because even though they're not Germany as we know it today, they're still all German. Um, yeah, culturally speaking. I mean, there is some debate on what is German. Is it just people speaking German? Is it behaving um, as a as a German, but what is behaving as a German? I mean, do you walk around, around in Lederhosen all day? Do you drink beer? Um, what is German, even though we're still 150 years ago? So um, I think the soldiers um, fighting for the, um, the, the war that the Prussians kind of started also gives them maybe hope of a united... Um, a united Germany as they have been longing for for quite some time but then at the same time um, they're still identifying as Bavarian soldiers they're still Württemberg soldiers and I mean you still have it today um, you still have the people that call themselves Bavarian first and then Germans you still have um, people that call themselves Württembergers first before they say, okay, I'm from Baden-Württemberg and then saying, okay, I'm German. So um, I suppose it's, it's both. I think it's, it's um, annoyance being sucked into a war which wasn't your problem um, to begin with and um, excitement and being maybe able to um, get a united Germany, even, even if it is under Prussian leadership. All the time, the same group of, of, of people who want to go to war. It's uh, the same fact in 1914, 
um, when young people without a family went on the streets and, and crying for war, and the older ones who know they have not to fight. To fight. People who have a family, uh, who works, who have um, something to do in, in this life, don't want to fight because they know they can, they can die. Um, the, the, the Battle of Words on August 6, when Prussians, barbarians, and Württemberg troops um, won against the French, the, the French troops, was an initiation for, for um, a feeling of um, being one nation. And um, maybe without this battle, it would have been very more difficult um, to, to create something like um, um, common national identity on the battlefield. Well, if that's not a teaser for the episode where we talk about that battle, uh, I don't know what is. So, um, you mentioned briefly that some of these regional identities that exist then are still important today. Which brings me to the question, in terms of today, why else can we say that the Franco-Prussian War still has relevance today? Why does it still retain importance now, 151 years after the fact? As you saw on your bike ride yesterday, um, the war is still very present um, in our everyday lives today. Um, and it's more present, much more present than some might actually think. Personally, for example, I grew up in a street called Bertstrasse, um, which was right next to our Champigny-Straße, uh, so Champigny Street. And um, I'm sure if I went back and if I went into, into an archive and looked at the other street names around uh, my home street, they would probably, they, they might actually have similar names um, as those two, but those are the only two left. It did take until I started my degree and actually started my studies uh, with Tobias to understand the meaning of that street name. Um, so it's the same with um, public places. For example, here in Stuttgart, um, where I live, we have a, a Bismarck Square, where a big um, Bismarck uh, made out of stone sits above an ice cream place. <laughs> And yeah, it's quite he funny. He probably liked ice cream. I mean, in defense of that, <laughs> of that urban planning. Yeah, it, it's pretty funny, actually. Uh, you can eat ice cream right under Bismarck's nose. Um, we have sta statues of the Prussian king down here, for example. Um, and we have memorials everywhere, and people don't notice them. They're oftentimes there on um, old cemeteries, for example, but... Um, at the town hall where I, in, in the town where I grew up, um, it's, it's quite pretty there and people get married there and they take a picture right in front of the um, town hall. And uh, what I'm pretty sure 99.9% .9 of those people don't realize is that there's a big memorial plaque for the uh, dead sons of the um, town right behind them. Um, I have proof of my parents taking the exact same picture, for example. And when I saw it and I was like, hey, uh, did you guys realize that there's a memorial plaque behind you? They're like, no, has this been there forever? Yes, it's been there forever since the beginning of the 20th century. And it's just this war is all around us. Um, and as Tobias has already explained, 
it is of immense importance as the forerunner of today's most famous wars, the First and Second World Wars. Um, moreover, as we already mentioned, uh, the first germination state emerged from this war. Of course, this would have probably happened sooner or later, even without a war, um, seeing as the um, constitution, <laughs> the constitution of the Norddeutsche Bund already allowed for the uh, southern German states to become a member eventually. The Nazis themselves, they oriented themselves on the Kaiserreich. Um, if you have a look at the name, they gave themselves the Third Reich. You, they obviously saw themselves as successors of the Kaiserreich. Or if you look at the colors of their flag, for example, black symbol on white circle on a red flag. Well, those colors came originally from the Norddeutsche Bund, where the colors of the Kaiserreich. Um, and originally those colors come from the Hanseatic cities, white and red, and the Prussian colors, black and white. And even today, we still find the Prussian colors everywhere. I mean, currently the European championship is going on. Have you ever had a look at the jerseys of the German national football team, black and white? Well. Hmm, I wonder where they come from. So um, it's still of importance today, even if people um, don't really realize it and they should maybe realize it. I, I, I believe they should realize it because um, it helps to understand um, the world we live in and the world we come from, kind of. Right. So in a way, it's all around us, it's infusing the public space. And you know, you've given quite a few examples of Germany, obviously, because that's where you're from and that's your experience. But there's a similar vibe uh, in France as well, where there's lots of memorials and there's lots of stories that are uh, f sometimes lost in, in uh, people's everyday perceptions, but are, are nonetheless uh, there, with some differences, of course. I don't think there's a statue of Napoleon III under, uh, above an ice cream shop, but you never know. It, I'll make it my personal goal to find it. Just uh, very, very briefly to catch up our listeners, you mentioned a couple of times the Norddeutsche Bund. This is the North German Confederation for everyone who's out there. If you watch the series, you will very quickly become familiar with our friends in the North German Confederation. And the bike ride that I took not so long ago that I mentioned on Twitter was a random bike ride in Potsdam with a friend and lo and behold, this was not planned, I stumbled across a memorial to the Franco-Prussian War outside of a small church. So I have lived what you were just describing as well uh, just this weekend. So let us now round off our interview today with uh, another bit of a personal question, let's say. We've already been working together on the scripts uh, and you've been doing the research for the Glory and Defeat series. We've got uh, probably half a dozen or so, I think, scripts uh, done or in the process of being done at this stage, so we're quite excited about it. What has been the most fun and I may regret asking this, but what has been the most challenging so far for the two of you working on the scripts for Glory and Defeat? Um, obviously, on the one hand, it's very nice to continue to work with the war that, as I already mentioned, you have... You have that you've been dreaming of? That I've been dreaming of. Um, they're usually not, not good dreams, in all honesty. I've found myself in battle scenes far too often um yeah but 
despite the dreams, um, you it's a war that you've grown fond of, kind of. The people that um, we told the stories of, uh, we've grown fond of them. So it's nice uh, to be able to continue to work with them. Um, obviously, Tobias has been working with them far longer than I have. So I suppose that goes for him even more so. Um, in addition, it's fun to find our work process um, that we need because obviously we had a process working for us the last year uh, for the Twitter project and now we have to change it up and it's I, I think the worst worst thing that could happen to you is to be bored so obviously um, I'm definitely not bored and um, this this work process is just so completely different um, it's much more communicative and well can we call it discussion based i suppose we can um i think so especially between the two of us yeah and of course playing with the language is always nice um what is challenge challenging is um we only have 10 minutes to tell the stories of a week so that means we have to reduce a lot which is already something we know from the Twitter project, but it goes even further now. Um, and you have to concentrate on what you have to tell so that the viewers who probably don't have much, if any, prior knowledge um, can also understand the events. And in doing so, you always have to do, differentiate between what do I want to tell and what do I have to tell? Because there's just so much worth telling about this war, especially if you come from a project in which individual fates were told in very small details, like really down to um, what kind of shoes they were wearing, for example. And sometimes it's just really difficult to, to decide what is really important here and what is something I just really want to tell people. So yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's my biggest challenge. For me, it's fun to, to work with Katarine. Um, she is one of the best students I, I ever had, I, I guess. And in the meantime, I accept her as a colleague. Um, the biggest challenge for me is, of course, working in English. But that's where, where I come in. Yeah. Yeah, I like to think that, uh, at least so far anyway, obviously there are some teething troubles figuring out how we're going to work together. What's, how do we align kind of our different experiences and, and backgrounds and how we sort of align our vision for, for each episode. But um, I really like the way that the skill sets that all of us here, I mean, not only me, I'm the one sitting in the chair talking now, but of course there's Flo and Tony working behind the camera as well and putting input and illustrating it and then editing it. So, um, so I think that that kind of combo uh, is going to come up with, with a good product for all of our listeners out there. And I hope that now they're so into the Franco-Prussian War that you out there folks listening to this are also going to dream of it tonight after listening to this podcast. So I want to thank both of you, Professor Arand and Ms. Pfaut, uh, for joining me today on the podcast. I've really enjoyed the process so far, and I had fun uh, talking to you today. So, well, here's to more glory and defeat. Let's put it that way. Thanks again for joining us.